God, after a, a break in Ruth, we're returning to the book of Ephesians this morning to continue our sermon series. And we're at a, a significant seam in this book thematically where Paul transitions from who we are as Christ people to how we should live as Christ people. And so we want to begin by thanking you for uh, your work to call us from death to life. We serve a God who does not demand our obedience in order to gain your acceptance. We have the opportunity to obey as your people because of the work of Christ. So I pray that you would get that order clear in our heads from the gate. And I pray that you would lift up Christ for us, who not only serves as our example, but through his death and resurrection and through the power of your spirit, you have given us new life. You've given us hearts that can love you and adore you and obey you. So we pray that you would strengthen us these next few months as we look together at Ephesians, and we pray this morning that you would help us to fight for the unity that Christ already purchased for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. As I prayed, chapter 4 marks a radical shift in the book. By my count, the first three chapters of Ephesians include only one command. I think it's a command to remember. Chapters 4 through 6 include nearly 40 commands. So Paul's emphasis in this letter is famously clear. And the command that kicks off chapter 4 in the second half of his letter to the church in Ephesus is a call to unity. That's what Paul is concerned with first as he turns the page. And here's how I'm summarizing the main idea of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Contend, that is struggle or fight, for the unity that Christ purchased in the past. A unity that's already been supplied. It's already bought and paid for. Paul wants us to fight for what's already true about us. And that is, we're unified. The unity of the church has been Paul's increasing concern over the first half of this letter of Ephesians. The Jews and the non-Jews, that is the Gentiles, in the city of Ephesus have been thrown together in a local church. Their culture and practices and preferences and lifestyles are radically different from one another. But that, now they're united together in a local church. And Paul urges them to contend, to fight for the unity that Christ has already purchased. Of course, this call to arms is immensely relevant to us, Cherrydale. One mark of Cherrydale that has consistently been an encouragement to Nicole and I is unity. God stitched together at Cherrydale a family that is very different from one another. In a thousand different ways, we could count our differences. Yet, we share resolute hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and a unified love for Jesus. And here's why unity amid differences is so vital. The quality of our church's lived, experienced, demonstrated unity reveals the theological reality that we are united. The quality of our lived or experienced unity reveals the theological reality that we are unified. This is what Paul wants, is concerned with this week. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, Paul calls us eagerly to pursue unity, to roll up your sleeves and to break a sweat to preserve the unity that Christ already purchased. And then in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, Paul intentionally reminds us of the theological foundation that we should be living on top of. 
the theological foundation that we are already unified. Here's why this is so important for us. My predecessor, Pastor Steve King, was adamant about this particular point. If our unity as a people, as a church, is built on anything other than the gospel, then our foundation will fail. It won't weather the storms. There are many things that could unify us. Profession could unify us. A similar profession, a similar life stage, or age, or political party, or interests, or ethnicity, or wealth and status, or backgrounds, or personalities, or worship style preferences, or how we talk about race, or how we fight to value the life of the unborn, or how we responded to COVID, or immigration policies. But a church united on any foundation other than the foundation of the gospel won't survive the storms of this world. Because only gospel unity is thick enough and eternal enough to be the foundation that we need. That does not mean that we don't strive for like-mindedness. It does not mean that we don't explore differences and have disagreements and try to seek understanding. It does mean that none of those things, nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, can serve as the foundation upon which we gather and worship and make disciples. But Paul's point this morning, the emphasis, the drive behind Paul's word to us this morning is that we need to fight for unity, that we can't take unity for granted, that we have to make sacrifices to preserve unity, that we have to learn how to disagree well with one another, that we need to devote ourselves appropriately to the word of God as our authority, that we need to pray for one another, and that we need to pursue one another. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, contend for the unity Christ purchased. We're going to spend most of our time in the first three verses, eagerly pursue our unified calling. Look again at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, I therefore, as if to say, in light of everything I've already written, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul identifies himself here as a prisoner of the Lord. He did it in chapter 3, verse 1 as well. He's letting us know that he suffered for Christ and for the church in some significant ways, including being a literal prisoner in Rome as he writes this letter to Ephesus. Therefore, he has credibility and authority to lean in and to press us because the gospel cost him. He has some authority to press toward us. He's not giving orders to others while he enjoys the safety and comfort of the rear. Paul is more like a general who rides his horse at the front of a charge. Following Jesus has cost Paul his comfort, his standing, and his freedom. And he's done it for Jesus and for the church. And therefore, he has the credibility to urge and to call the church in Ephesus to a certain kind of life. In the first three chapters, Paul has platformed all that's true of Jesus' people. If you are in Christ, here is what's true about you. Three thick, glorious chapters expounding who we are as Christ's people. We are recipients of astounding spiritual blessings. We are heirs of a glorious eternal inheritance. We are participants in God's powerful redemptive purposes. We are beneficiaries of a rich and merciful salvation. 
We are members of God's precious, all nations, all peoples, household. We are partakers of the mysterious gospel promise. And we are the dwelling of God's powerful, confirming spirit. That's who you are if you are in Christ. That's chapters 1 through 3. And now Paul turns from the reality of our gospel identity to the kind of gospel ethics that should be expected and seen and visible in Christ's people. Look again at verse 1. I urge, exhort, summon, call you to walk, that is conduct your life in a manner or in a way that is worthy, consistent, fitting of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, live consistent with who God has made you. By walk, Paul intends to have us have an image of carrying out our life. We make decisions. We buy houses. We work jobs. We raise families. We share the gospel. We strengthen churches. We love our neighbors. We run the race. We conduct our lives in a certain way. And the certain way is worthy of the calling. He's not saying that we earn or merit our salvation. That's not what he means by worthy. We don't obey to become a Christian. We obey because we are Christians. Grace enables us, makes it possible for us to obey in a way that's joyful. So then what does he mean by worthy? To be worthy is to be consistent. It's a life that's fitting and in line with the calling that God has placed on our lives. We're living in a fitting way in light of what God has made us. Now we expect certain behaviors from a U.S. senator or from a teacher or policeman or a Marine. The lifestyle of that person should in some ways match their calling. And so when Nicole reminds me in traffic that I'm a Christian, <laughs> she's reminding me that my anger doesn't fit my calling as a Christian. Paul urges the church in Ephesus and in Cherrydale to live lives that are consistent with the gospel. If all the realities of chapters 1 through 3 are true of you, then this is how you should be living in chapters 4 through 6. He wants our gospel identity to align with our gospel ethics. If you're a child of the light, then walk in the light. If you're an apple tree, then let's see the apples that God is producing in your life. And let's not forget that Paul urges a church to pursue this unified calling. We tend to read these commands as individual, but this is a command written to a people. This is a communal exhortation. And that's why the four commands that follow in verses 2 through 3, they focus on our life together in the local church, how we should be approaching and living with other Christians. He's labored to show us this in, in chapters 1 through 3, that how the gospel unifies an endlessly different group of people together in a church. This was the great gospel mystery that had been hidden for generations, but had become clear in Christ, that Jew and Gentile are made fellow heirs of the same inheritance, that Jews and Gentiles were members of the same body and partakers of the same promises, and all in Christ through the gospel. This is our calling. Now Paul says, live in light of it. Live worthy of it. There are four commands specifically that he gives us here. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's, a, it's four commands that he gives us that help us pursue this kind of unified calling. Look at verses 2 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lest we forget 
Remember that our righteousness is merely the harvest that God is producing in our life. With that in mind, here are the four commands. With all humility and gentleness. Here's the first way that you can pursue the calling in a way that's worthy of what's true about you. Humility is a modest way to think about yourself. Humility is not self-loathing. It's limiting how much time we spend rehearsing our accomplishments, our needs, our desires, our standing. When a humble person steps into a room, they're thinking about how they might glorify God and how they might serve other people in that room. A humble person enters a conversation to give, not to take. They're other-centered, not self-centered. Confident of who they are in Christ, they long to be an encouragement to the people around them. And excited for God to get the glory, they are mere and sparing about their own contributions, and they are clear about God's contributions. Gentleness is mildness. A gentle person is a person who is under control. They have a tempered spirit. They're not rough or bullish. They don't throw their weight around or their power around. They're not domineering. They're so confident in God's love for them that they don't need to fight to get or to keep standing or power or respect. Just think about the opposite of these two things. Think about the opposite of humility and gentleness. Arrogance and pride and self-centeredness, they all destroy community. Meanness and bullying and vindictiveness, they destroy community. They raise alarm and they tempt others to self-protection. They erode trust rapidly. They cause and amplify conflicts between people. They pollute and they violate the trust of community. And Paul says it should not be this way in the church. A local church should be filled with humility and with gentleness. And in this, we're simply reflecting Jesus. In Matthew 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are we marked by that kind of humility and gentleness. The second way we pursue unity and contend for it is with patience. The word here means, the etymology of the word literally means a long time before angry. You think of forbearance or long suffering. Think of a really long fuse that burns for a really long time before exploding. Patience can absorb, it considers, it prays, Patience covers. And this is a second way that we fight for unity because impatient actions and impatient speech damages families and friendships and local churches. And the reason we're impatient is because someone or something has blocked us from a goal or a need or a desire. There's something we want, and this person or this thing has blocked that goal. And when blocked, Proverbs 29 is on full display. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool lets it all hang out, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Patience is a key struggle for me. And so John Piper's helpful definition is taped to my computer. Stand in God's appointed place. Go at God's appointed pace. Stand at God's appointed place and go at God's appointed pace. Don't resent what God has brought or allowed in your life. 
whether that person or that thing, whatever has blocked your goal, don't resent what God has brought or allowed. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. Exercise confidence in a powerful, wise, and good God. That's what can fuel patience. That's what can provide rest. So are we patient when people cost us? Maybe by being late or when they sin against us and suck us into the consequences of their sin, or when they're careless or inconsiderate, or when they're rude and thoughtless, or when they're unreasonable and unthinking. God is patient toward us in our sin, and Paul wants us to exercise that same patience towards one another in the local church. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said this in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When a church family is patient with one another, we display the patient, long-suffering love of the God we worship. The third thing we do to pursue unity is to bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. In other words, we endure other people. As we've already seen, the gospel assembles a wildly diverse group of people. Think of the differences that we have even in this room. We come from various countries. We're male and female. We're different ages and generations and skin colors. Our upbringings are different. So are our careers, our interests, our levels of education. Our personalities differ. Our experiences in life are different. Some of our political opinions differ. Yet the Spirit has collected us here. And when we come together, Paul urges us to tolerate each other's weaknesses and quirks and differences. We bear with the weird and the eccentric and the clueless, and we bear with each other's sin. We don't excuse one another's sin, but neither should our sins surprise one another. We are sinners gathered together in a local church. And as we live together in friendships, the differences between us will tempt us to annoyance and to judgment, to move from that's different to that's weird to that's wrong. And we'll be tempted to pull away from one another and to find pockets of sameness, even within a church family, to redivide into subgroups where we're most comfortable, where we feel most seen and known. And Paul says, bear with one another in love. Cover over the, these things for the sake of displaying unity, and do it because of love. Because of love, bear with the failings and differences that you see and find in one another. Very practically, when a member annoys you, you might take the time to remember that you're probably quite annoying to someone else. <laughs> and when you find these things, don't move away and don't lash out. Bear with one another. Bear with their annoyance because you love them. And that doesn't mean that you can't help and challenge, that you can't help them develop and grow. But it means you do it from a place of love. Love is the motivation and love is the means by which we challenge and encourage one another. And when a member sins against us, respond with grace. Move toward them in love. Bear the weight of their sin with them. Gently point out their sin, confront it, and walk with them as they repent and move through the consequences of their sin. Here's the fourth way, and it's a bit of a summary. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain unity. It's not just a call to maintain unity. It's a call to be eager. Make haste to pursue unity. D.A. Carson reminds us that the Spirit creates unity. Christians maintain it. And we need to maintain it eagerly. In other words, maintaining unity takes effort. Nobody said it would be easy. It wasn't easy in Ephesus as Jews and Gentiles are suddenly joined together. And it's not going to be easy here either. It's going to take work to display the unity that Jesus purchased. But that's exactly what Paul urges us toward. Now, under this fourth point, I want to give you four very practical suggestions. The first is to resist thin relationships. Resist thin relationships. Don't settle, though it's tempting in a transient place, don't settle for life on the fringe of our church family. That starts by making it a priority and making a commitment to gather for worship each week. It has to start there. It doesn't matter what bad habits may have developed over the last four years. Make it a commitment to be here. Let this be the first rock into your weekly calendar, that you will be here for worship. But it can't end with showing up in this room to gather with this people. If you haven't committed yet to our church family and membership, if you haven't raised your hand and said, you know what, I want to grow and worship and serve alongside a particular people. I want to formally commit to a people. I want to urge you to do that this year. But beyond becoming a member, be a meaningful member. Consider coming to the 8.30 prayer meeting or the 9 o'clock Sunday class hour or join a life group or pursue friendships. Those are all avenues to pursue the principle of godly friendships where you are known and you know others, where you can challenge people to grow. Don't settle for the fringe. Don't settle for thin relationships. Press to the middle. And those are practical ways that you can do that. And as you pursue friendships with other people, move from the what to the how to the why. Our conversations typically start with what's going on in one another's lives. And that's a good place to start. But as you get to know one another, press past the what's happening, the the circumstantial things about one another's lives, to how are you responding to those challenges and those blessings? It's got to be hard. How are you handling this? And from there, you can move further to the why. Why do you think you're responding in that way to that thing? We can press past thin relationships to authentic friendships where we're growing in faith together in Christ. Resist thin relationships. Also move toward disagreements. Unity isn't a lack of conflict. We can disagree when the Bible leaves us room. The church should be the place for nuanced, loving, thoughtful conversations about complicated issues our culture is thinking through. We can sharpen each other. We can leave room for one another's conscience. Like a mature marriage, we can disagree without our unity being touched. We're not going anywhere. We can have this conversation. We can lean in to one another. Third, don't ignore sin in each other. Sometimes confrontation is necessary to maintain peace. If you see me walking toward the edge of a cliff and I'm not responding to your voice, then by all means, tackle me to the ground. 
Confrontation sometimes is necessary to maintain peace. Loving, that is tender and truthful, confrontation of sin in one another's lives is a core to maintaining unity. As we walk humbly with Jesus, we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the last one. Move toward people different than you. Don't just huddle with people like you. Move toward people who are different from you. You can do this in Sunday classes. You can do this as you serve together in ministry. You can do this in a life group that's based geographically rather than by life stage. It's not to say those life stage, age stage ministries are not useful. They are. It's really important that we're able to connect with people who understand exactly where we're at. But that comes easier, doesn't it? We need to work harder to build friendships with people who are in a completely different stage of life, who are seeing things from a completely different perspective. Move toward people different than you. That's the, first, that's the first thing Paul wants us to understand this morning. Eagerly pursue unity. The second, more quickly, verses 4 through 6, intentionally remember our unified foundation. Intentionally remember our unified foundation. As you pursue unity, don't forget the truth of who you are as Christ's people. It's as if he's returning briefly to chapters 1 through 3 to remind us succinctly of what's true about us. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Seven stones to this foundation. The first is you are one body. The church may have many members, but we're one body. The church may include many sheep, but we are one flock. The church may be many people, but we're one bride. The church may be made up of many stones, but we're one building. This is the key point in the New Testament. The many have been made one. The many are being stitched together from every tribe and tongue and nation and transformed into one people. And this body, though it has many members who have various gifts and who serve various functions, that body is one body. The second stone is one spirit. There is one spirit, one Holy Spirit that dwells inside the church. Recall what Paul's already said about the spirit in chapters 1 through 3. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We're given wisdom by the Holy Spirit. We're given access to the Father through the Spirit. We're a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We receive revelation, the Bible, from the Spirit. We're strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit. There is one Spirit that indwells God's people and unifies us together. Third stone, we are one hope. One identical hope reverberates in the hearts of God's people. One identical hope accompanies the call to fellowship with God in Christ. It is the hope that God will keep His promises. Certain hope that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Hope that we will be blameless before Him in love. Hope that in the fullness of time, Christ will unite all things together in Him in heaven and on earth. One hope of a future inheritance. One hope that He will work all things in our lives together for His good. That's all chapter one. The whole church is driven along by the same hope. The fourth stone is one Lord. Paul wants us to know and remind us that it's Jesus alone who calls the shots. 
He's the king to whom we all look. He's the chief shepherd that cares for the church. He's the one seated at the Father's right hand. He's the one who will return for the bride, the church. Number five, there's one faith. Here, Paul has in mind a specific set of convictions, a statement that outlines the beliefs of the church, a set of beliefs that are agreed upon by the churches all across the first century Roman Empire. The sixth stone is one baptism. Baptism, which is the outward declaration of an inward reality. And the whole church has experienced this sign. We've all been baptized together into Christ. We've all submitted to the same one sign. And finally, number seven, one God and Father. One God and Father who is over all, that is, He is sovereign and transcendent over all things and through all and in all, meaning He's imminent and intimate. One God and Father. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Paul wants the church to understand that our commitment to eagerly maintain unity is merely an outward expression of the inward reality. We are one spiritually. Paul says, act out that reality. You are united, so act, be, pursue unity. Live above the theological foundation. Don't wander off the theological foundation. Live above it, a unified, joyful life together. One way that we intentionally remember to do this is by participating in the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in a few minutes. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves together that we're in this together, that we are all united together in Christ. So think about that in a special way as we take the Lord's Supper. Terrydale, the unity that we experience together is a tested unity. It's not untested, it's tested. It's been tested in significant ways over the last four years. And I've watched you eagerly pursue our unified calling. I've watched it in you. I've watched you remember our theological foundation through complicated COVID restrictions, through painful racial reconciliation conversations, through historic political divisions. I've watched you move toward one another, not away from each other. I've watched you demonstrate the humility and gentleness that Paul holds up for us this morning. I've watched you exercise patience and forbearance. I've watched you bear with one another in love. I've watched you eagerly maintain the unity that we enjoy in Christ. We've still had some churn over the last four years. We've still said some painful goodbyes, but you've contended and fought for unity. Amid massive division, our country all around us desperately sought to find safety within their tribe. We watched this. Fear and confusion tempted us to find our tribe, those we feel most comfortable with, and to keep our heads down. But you demonstrated that your tribe at the most fundamental level was the church. When you peel back layer after layer of who we are as people, you come to the core of who we are and you find the gospel. And you demonstrated as you contended for unity that your tribe at the core level was the church. That our identity as Jesus' people is the most core identity that we have. 
As I said, one of the things I love most about Cherrydale is how God has gathered us together. When our neighbors, the ones who live around this property and building, when they see us walk into this church each Sunday and throughout the week, or when your physical neighbors and mine see Cherrydale gather in each other's homes throughout the week, let them wonder, let them wonder for what purpose does this group of people who in endless ways look so different from each other, for what purpose do they gather at 3910 Lorcom Lane? For what purpose do they gather in each other's homes throughout a given week? Let them wonder why we're gathered together. We gather for the gospel. We gather to worship God and to adore Him, Father, Son, and Spirit. He came to redeem and to ransom, and He will come again to rescue and to restore. And when He does, we will be with Him forever, where the unity will no longer be tested. It will be perfected in Christ forevermore. Cherrydale, whatever may come in the year ahead and in the years ahead, contend for the unity that Christ already purchased. Father, we, we look to you with gratitude because none of this happens in our own strength. As we rely upon your spirit, as we rely upon who we are in Christ, your spirit does the work of unifying us. And so we pray that you would remind us of that this morning as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper. Strengthen us according to your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.